good evening. My name is Ryan Scherzinger. Thanks for uh, coming out and braving the cold this evening. Welcome to Tuesdays at APA. Uh, an after-work lecture series APA holds one Tuesday a month, whereby practicing planners, researchers, and professionals from allied fields discuss uh, innovative ideas or present their latest projects. Uh, tonight, uh, we're going to hear about APA's work in Latin America over the last several years uh, through the U.S. State Department's Energy and Climate Partnership of the Americas, or ECPA for short. Uh, ECPA is an umbrella of initiatives that partner public, private, and academic organizations to promote sustainable development, the use of alternative energy, and the elimination of poverty. Since 2010, APA has worked on the ECPA, excuse me, ECPA initiative uh, to build capacity for urban planning and promote sustainable development in Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, I'll now briefly introduce our three speakers this evening. Uh, Thomas Bassett, who is a senior program associate here at APA. Uh, Catalina Mayorga, an independent consultant uh, for one of our East ECPA projects. And uh, Luis Teran, another independent consultant for one of the projects. Uh, unfortunately, Jen Graf, uh, our international program manager, fell ill and won't be able to join us this evening. But I think Tom will cover much of her portion. Uh, before we start, I ask that you please hold all the questions until the end of the presentations. Uh, and now, please join me in welcoming tonight's first speaker, Thomas Bassett. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Can everyone hear me? Thanks for coming out in this bitter, bitter cold day. We will be talking about warmer climes, so hopefully that will warm everyone up a little bit. I'm going to share a little bit about the background to the four demonstration projects that we're doing right now. So. As Ryan um, mentioned, it's under the Energy and Climate Partnership of the Americas um, initiative. This was launched in 2009 at the Summit of the Americas in Port of Spain, Trinidad and Tobago by President Obama to foster a dialogue across the hemisphere about energy and climate issues. Um, he charged the U.S. State Department with granting different um, organizations for research and programs that promote this goal. Um, APA received a grant, our first grant, which we're not going to talk a lot about today, which was to kind of promote urban planning across, across the region. And we really um, charged different academic institutions with planning studios. We had held different events to promote planning and kind of get the conversation talking because between North America and um, Latin America, the co concept of planning really is quite different. Um, our second grant is much more specific. We're working to support four demonstration projects in Latin America for innovative solutions in housing and community, community development. And this might seem like an outlier for most of the ECPA grants because most of the ECPA research is kind of focused on um, very specific technical scientific research. But we see that housing is, and planning is very important to the climate change um, talks. So. House, housing is not just a house, you, it's more of a platform that connects people to, house, uh, to employment, leisure, services, and transportation. So the location and the te technologies used while building housing has a great effect on the environment and it ha also on the individual costs of living as well. So we were looking at different projects that we could support throughout the region that kind of reduce these costs. So the second grant grew out of the second grant grew out, of, grew out of a competition that we supported during the, our first grant, which was run by Ashoka Changemakers and also funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. This was a, more of an ideas competition that was looking for innovative um, housing solutions. So from this global competition, we focused on the Americas, and we were looking for four demonstration projects that we could support 
through technical assistance and also financial assistance. Assistance. Okay, sorry about that. Um, this was our original two-year timeline, and um, although it might seem like a little different now, we kind of have stayed on pretty much on course. And but we're working in four different countries and four different locations, so it's been challenge challenging to kind of keep up with the different social, social, political, and economic hurdles that we have come into. This is a quick rundown of how we were able to get from 289 submissions and down to four submissions. We had some restrictions laid out from the U.S. State Department about which countries we could work in. Um, and if you have any questions about how we did this, because of time, I'm going to um, kind of move forward on this. Our process was to factor in the goals of the grant with evaluating each submission and determining if the submission met the goals as well as our, our own criteria that we developed. At the heart of this was an attribute ma matrix which was created by our original intern team. So each, we evaluated each project and um, gave it a different score depending on a, a wide variety of um, attributes. And we were also looking at what was happening politically, economically, and socially in each country. And we also wanted a geographic distribution. So we also looked at the, our four main criteria was organizational capacity, replicability, environmental concern and sustainable practices, and community engagement. So here you can see the distribution of where the submissions came from in Latin America. It was overwhelmingly from South America and specifically Brazil. We also had not many coming from the Caribbean and Central America. And you can see that the most, most of the submissions were working in urban areas. For a quick glance at the top 19, again, most of them came from Brazil, and they focused on green materials and construction. So here is kind of a comprehensive overview of our top 10 that, and the four that we actually selected. We considered what was happening on the ground, our goals and criteria, and came up with these four projects. One is in Bolivia. One is in Mexico, one is in Peru, and one, of course, in Brazil. So now we will talk about each of these projects separately, and starting with Bolivia. There you go. How's everybody doing? My name is Luis, and I've been working with... Uh, Habitat para la Mujer, Comunidad María Exiladora, in Cochabamba, Bolivia, since September 2012. Uh, Comunidad María Exiladora, or CMA, is a uh, co-housing neighborhood in the urban periphery of Cochabamba, Bolivia. It houses uh, over 400 families and f about 55 acres. Um, the community, CMA, caters to low-income families, single mothers, victims of domestic violence, um, and their mission is to provide affordable housing uh, by keeping uh, the price of the land low for the houses that um, they live in by, um, by requiring a entry fee that is a one-time um, thing, a one-time payment um, and then from there you you inhabit the home that is then inherited to your children and your children's children 
Uh, as you can see in these pictures, it's again in the urban periphery of Cochabamba, um, up on the hillside. Uh, since CMA is a co-housing, they have communal work two, two Sundays a month, um, and the residents actively participate in the development of the community, the infrastructure of the community, water services, roads. Um, you see in this picture, uh, community work, they are um, laying down the foundation for the leadership school that we helped them uh, to build. Now, quickly on Cochabamba. Cochabamba is uh, in the center of Bolivia. Bolivia is in the center of uh, South America. But you can see we have the urban skyline of Cochabamba, uh, where it is denser than the urban periphery, as you can see here. Uh, this is a picture taken from the community. Uh, it's less dense. There are less services, retail, commercial. Uh, but a lot of migration has been coming to this urban periphery. And again, you can see in these uh, maps, uh, this is the denser downtown area. And right here is District 9, where CMA is located. And in addition to the community, over 50% of Cochabamba's migration has been arriving to this district. Uh, it is by far the largest district of the city. Now, urban development in District 9 is uh, not recognized because it is still uh, classified as a rural land area. So all urban development is informal and would have to pay penalties to formalize. They do not have access to public services. Um, you know, police presence is minimal in these areas. Now, that has a negative effect on CMA because the organic charter of the community is not recognized by the municipal services. They're not incorporated into decision-making processes in, in, in addition to the rest of, of the district. Now, the objective of the CMA and APA partnership from the onset was to, one, assist CMA to train uh, or provide workshops for over 800 women on political messaging, lobbying, entrepreneurship, self-management, uh, topics of that nature. In addition, we uh, provided technical and funding assistance to build a leadership school where future workshops could take place, the general assemblies uh, could take place in a more controlled environment. And then lastly, assist CMA to engage with the uh, municipal authorities in Cochabamba uh, in order to lobby for their legal incorporation. So you can see it's a full circle, the political messaging, uh, the lobbying workshops were to help each one of these women um, get their point across when they engage with uh, municipal authorities, uh, which are usually of different backgrounds you, from different classes, social classes, which would take into account uh, the way the, uh, the message is delivered. So some of the realities that CMA is facing at the moment, um, 
market prices for land is skyrocketing the area. When the community was founded in 1999, a square meter was three, three U.S. dollars. Now it's upwards to 50 to 70 U.S. dollars per, per square meter. Um, the skyrocketing land prices then has caused an internal struggle. There's an opposition group that wants uh, individual land titles, which has caused uh, caused a schism. And as a result, there's the government is less interested to engage with the community uh, to hear their message to see how uh, the urban periphery of Cochabamba could benefit from a co-housing arrangement. Uh, but aside from some of the difficulties that they face, there is a, these women do have an unyielding dedication to provide a better living standard to um, their children. A lot of them are from are migrants from uh, poor parts of the country, uh, so their intention is to set a foundation for for uh, their children. As you can see, a lot of them are involved when they have uh, workshops, meetings. This was a workshop we held um, in preparation for a workshop that we engaged uh, with municipal, municipal officials to speak of the most pressing urban topics in Cochabamba. Um, a lot of the youth groups were involved in in these uh, in the workshop that we held. So I would say, uh, in my experience, some of the lessons that I learned. Um, this was the first time I really had contact with a, a co-housing neighborhood, uh, much less in a foreign country. To respect the local customs and the modes of engagement. A lot of times decisions were held at consensus. So out of respect to them, we, you would have to wait to, for a general assembly to take place, the board of directors to come with a decision. Um, so deadlines had to be flexible. Um, in terms of engaging with the municipal authorities, uh, when we did set up the workshop, uh, we had to reiterate the political messaging the, um, and provide it in a neutral manner because of the perceived apathy towards their their mission statement, um, it could get conflictual. So that was another thing. We would hold a workshop two days prior to uh, run through the structure when they are in the setting that it, and they engage with the municipal authorities. And lastly, to involve uh, the youth of the community, as I previously stated, they would inherit um, the lots that their f parents have at the moment. So it was important to gauge uh, where they see the future of the community going and also teaching them from um, a young age to engage and that their voices could be heard um, from the municipal authorities. And it will be interesting to see what happens in uh, the urban periphery of Cochabamba and the future of co-housing in Bolivia in general. Now, that ends uh, our project in Bolivia, and I'll pass it on to Catalina to speak about uh, the Mexican project. Hello, everyone. I'm Catalina Mayorga, and I'm overseeing the demonstration project in Mexico. So um, because of sake of time, I'm really going to focus on the lessons learned rather 
delve it rather um, than discuss kind of the details of the project. I'm specifically going to talk about the lessons learned around community engagement and the planning and design process of public spaces. So uh, for Mexico, uh, our grantee was a local nonprofit um, located in Mexico City, CTS Embark, that is focused on sustainable transportation and uh, urban development. And um, they had decided that they wanted to initiate a public uh, pocket park strategy in Mexico City in coordination and collaboration with the government agency of public spaces. And this uh, initiative had received support at all levels, including the mayor, who decided that he wanted 150 pocket parks designed and built in one year. So they had a lot of pressure, and it was a pretty tall order. So the first um, pocket park that they built was this one right here in the an upper middle class neighborhood of Coyacan. This is in front of a coffee shop. And um, they went in there, they, they observed for a few hours, decided, okay, this is, we think with all the observations we had, this is a great design, this is what we should do, we should put some bike racks, we should put some community benches. The second pocket park that they decided to design, which is not finished, was in another part of the Koyakon neighborhood. And within a day of building, all of a sudden they had several neighbors outside um, yelling at them, asking them what were they doing, why were they building that there, this is going to create so much problems with illegal trafficking, why did no one consult them? Um, it was so many neighbors and such an uproar that they decided to stop building the pocket park and think about this whole community engagement strategy. And um, they decided to uh, hold a community forum with the neighbors to discuss this uh, pocket park. So um, this is actually a really important point. Uh, the forum was not moderated or facilitated in any way. They said, well, we're just going to have an open discussion. Um, and that ended up kind of being a huge mess. Uh, this picture actually looks pretty civilized and um, like everyone's calm. But what actually ended up happening, because this group of neighbors was pretty opinionated, uh, technical staff would come up and they would start saying, well, this is why we're doing this, and this is going to be a great amenity for your pocket park, and this is a neighbor right here. And they would jump up, the neighbors would jump up, interrupt the technical staff saying, no, 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 you don't understand what's going on. Actually, when you say this is a crosswalk that we could walk across, this is, causes X, Y, Z problems. So um, APA was part of uh, observing this meeting, and um, uh, needless to say, the Public Space, Space Authority and CTS staff felt pretty defeated after that meeting. Um, they thought they were doing something great, and that this would everyone would love it, and why was there so much negativity, and why was everyone yelling at them? Um, they weren't feeling too great. So this is when APA and CTS Embark decided, okay, we're not going to focus on the actual structures of pocket parks. A huge, where we can have the most impact is actually the knowledge transfer of community engagement in the planning process. It is um, not very present there, and this is where we think we can help them the most so that it continues to be used in, with the pocket park strategy in the future. So... 
This goes to my first, uh, or our first kind of lesson learned in this project, and it was never underestimate the importance of community engagement during the planning process. Um, it actually can end up costing you a lot more time and a lot more money when you don't engage the community from the beginning. So uh, based off of this, uh, APA brought, in coordination, or brought two um, additional technical experts, one from Architecture for Humanity, who you guys might be familiar with that um, organization, nonprofit, it's pretty well known for their innovative community um, engagement processes, and another um, consultant from Columbia who works on various projects, but um, also co-founded a architecture and design innovation firm in, Col in Bogota, Colombia. Um, and what we did is we did not lecture. We didn't do any of that. We just got their hands dirty right away, all the technical staff, and started helping them learn about participatory planning. And this is kind of one of the end results where this is a tool that they can use in the future with um, community members. And so this is kind of the second uh, lesson learned. It wasn't that the staff didn't want to engage the community or they thought that the community didn't want to be involved. It's honestly that they just didn't know how to engage the community. In their uh, professional or educational learning um, in urban development at whatever university they went to, community engagement was really never discussed, and they were really never trained in that. So they just kind of were intimidated by the process. They were like, well, we know it's important, but we don't know how to do it, so we're just kind of going to put it to the side and not worry about it. Um, and so what we were really trying to show them that it, it's easy, it's it's better, the results are better, and we showed them a bunch of, we shared a bunch of case studies, and then we led them through a bunch of activities. Um, so it was so successful that this kind of first training with the Public Space Authority and CTS Embark that they asked us to come back and lead a larger training. And it was with 40 staff um, from various government agencies, including the Ministry of Transportation for, or Office of Transportation for Mexico City, um, office that was in charge of the public bike share, other offices. And what was really important to note is that they also invited members from the local delegaciones, which is kind of like, would be equivalent to the DC's ANCs. So um, kind of their city or uh, their neighborhood representatives. Here's, oops, sorry. Um, she's, if you can see right here, I don't know. She's from one of the delegaciones. Um, so over a third of the participants were not planners or architects. They were community members. Um, and so what we did, it was a two-day training. We, again, did uh, various activities that they can go and use with the community directly when they're building the pocket parks in these communities. Um, some of these, sorry, some of these, one of these was... Um, one of the activities, what we had decided to do when we started the training is we took a space right outside of the building where the training was, and we kind of used it as a fake space where the government might um, decide, we want a pocket park here. So it kind of was the foundation for the rest of the training that helped to lead us through many of the activities. So what we did is we had them go outside and start interviewing everyone that could be a potential uh, user of the space or uh, affected by the space, pedestrians walking by, um, the people with the small business stands here, which are every, very prevalent 
throughout Mexico City, um, local business on the peripheries, uh, neighbors um, start interviewing them, asking about their experience, what they do, what, what's dangerous to them, ha- kind of wa- just following them and observing them as well. We did another activity that was focused on newspaper headlines, and I, can, I won't explain that since we're running out of time. Um, so uh, it was a two-day workshop. It went really well, uh, and it was aimed, at, again, at giving them the tools that they could go use moving forward when they're building um, the pocket parks in different neighborhoods. So I think this comes to my final um, point and lesson learned. It's really important when you go into these processes that you understand that you, you say from the beginning that we are not the experts of this community. And anytime we start a session, we would say that we're not the experts of Mexico City or the issues you deal with. We're simply here to be facilitators and help you um, communicate your ideas and knowledge. And I think it's you know the power or the tool of observation. It's a good tool, but what's more powerful is someone's experience. And we don't live in the communities. We're not there every day. Um, and just because they don't have formal training and planning doesn't mean that they don't have good ideas or they don't have I- ways to resolve some of the issues they face in their community. Um, and so I just want to leave you with some of the resources we use that you could pull many of these activities and tools from. Uh, one of them is the oh, sorry, uh, Human Centered Design Toolkit. Uh, we also use the IDEO method cards. And we also pulled a lot from Architecture for Humanities um, different, uh, they, they have a toolkit too on planning, uh, participatory planning. So if you have any questions about this at the end, I'm more than happy to answer them. And Thomas Bassett will speak about Peru and Brazil. All right. So moving on to Peru. I'm sure that most of you know about this country. It is on the Pacific coast and in, in also in the Indian region. It has about 30 million people. And for the past five years, it's really been growing a lot in GDP. It's stemming mostly from mineral extraction. We are working in Lima, which is the capital. It's a rapidly growing city. Um, about 7 million people are living there right now. And recently, because of all this economic growth, there's been a surge of real estate construction, mostly high-end, which has really driven the price of housing through the roof. The city is, today is really lacking in affordable clean, and what the locals call dignified housing. Which brings us to Elise. This is the partner organization we're working with in Lima. It is called the Legal Efficiency for Social Inclusion. And it's a local NGO that has been working in Lima for more than a decade. The scope of this project was to advise and fund the organization to realize the actual steps of construction of social housing. Before I get there, though, I'm going to give a little more background to the organization and the area that it's actually working in so you can understand the work that we're getting through. So Ellis is a group of lawyers and architects that are working in the REMAC district of central uh, Lima. The organization successfully lobbied for a law in 2010 that stipulates any new construction or any new development in historic districts must have some sort of social component. It's a little vague at what a social component is, but social housing follows, fall, fall, falls under that category. So here you can see um, Central Lima, and it is a UN uh, World Heritage Site. So Elise decided to work in the REMAC district. Now, the large colonial 
Square is in central Lima. That is typical to many South American and Latin American cities. But we're working in Rimac, which is across the river here. Although it has many beautiful architectural embellishments, such as the large or the oldest um, bullfighting ring in the Americas, that river really is a dividing point, and they don't see as much tourism or development. So Rimac once was the residential uh, area for the wealthy. But in the 50s and 60s, the wealthy population moved out from the central location to the south, closer to the beaches, and they abandoned this architecturally rich neighborhood. The consequence of this flight was that groups of squatters moved in and to these abandoned ma- mansions in Remac, and they've created small communities that adapted and then grew in size. Today, the conditions of the buildings are in ruins, and the sanitary conditions are not healthy. And, ex- and housing is extremely crowded. And in, in Peru, there is a very weak housing authority. So Elise has, has had to come up with an innovative way of how, how to address the needs of this population. So the goal of the development of, of this project is to redevelop the area where the people are squatting today, compensate the original landowners, and then provide subsidized units to those people who are squatting there. And just for fun, add some uh, market value um, additional units, which will be a profit for a developer. So this way, the squatters are able to keep, to stay um, in their place where they have been living, and they will be able to own the property. And they will also enter the formal banking system. And this is also, this area is very attractive because of its central location for employment, so the hope that the the real estate market will be robust enough to sell off those market rate apartments. So the the major situation here has a few components. Land tenure is obviously the largest and kind of glaring issue here. Also, we have a vulnerable, unorganized, and low-income population. And then also there's a lack of investment. So to tackle the issues of land tenure, Elise began looking back through the public records to figure out who actually owned the land. And these date back from the colonial times. So most of these uh, <clears throat> properties are owned by a large group of descendants, and at least had to work with a, them to figure out if they were on board with the redevelopment idea of their property. And since the idea was that they would receive fair compensation, most of the property owners were very excited about this idea because right now they're paying pro- property tax, which is very low, but they're still paying property tax and usually never receiving any sort of rental compensation for the people that are living there. But the largest tax by far was dealing with the residents and organizing them. Elise was able to organize many residents across the Remac area into associations. Each association had a chairperson which acted as a liaison between Elise and the other residents. So this is when APA stepped in. So all this background that they've been working through is very, very impressive. Um, So we came in to do the final arrangements to push through the actual development. And through technical um, assistance visits, we, we, we decided that there would have to be a, a request for proposal to garner interest from the private sector. So APA advised Elise on moving forward in this process. So therefore, the lack of investment would be um, offered up for redevelopment by a private developer. So you can see here that we have six sites that were decided to move forward for a pilot. There are hundreds of buildings in the REMAC area that could be redeveloped, 
but only six today are ready with very organized residential associations, and also all the property owners are on board with selling. So the next step was for Ellie's to compile individual profiles of every resident that are in these six sites. So this way they were able to gauge the financial capacity of each of the, the residents, and they could set the subsidy rate for each of um, the new units in the new house housing. So at the same time, the bundling of these families also is more attractive to banks, whereas an individual of low income will not be able to receive a loan. If you bundle a group together with varying incomes, it's more attractive for a bank. And also, since REMAC is in a World Heritage Site, the designs of each building were heavily scrutinized by the Ministry of Culture. So here you can see um, some of the renderings of the redevelopments, and they are trying to fit in with the neighborhood. Most of the massings are um, towards the back of the, the lots. That's to not really interfere with the streetscape. And you can see they tie in pretty well. This one, uh, not so much, but it, it did pass the Ministry of Culture, so we're moving forward. Um, last summer, a public RFP was released, and we had 12 interested companies for redevelopment. Unfortunately, we only received two formal applications, um, and we think that the lack of this, the lack of the proposals, has probably explained that nothing like this has ever been done before in Peru. And people are kind of scared of mixed income development, and especially in this neighborhood that hasn't seen development in many decades. So APA and Elis convened an international jury to review these two submissions, and we recommended to go with one group and to move forward with that, that one bid. And the project was on schedule and looking like we were going to be breaking ground early this year when Elise decided to go with the other group. So this is kind of an interesting power play in that, you know, APA is in an advisory role. We can't make the final decisions. So it was kind of upsetting that we thought that we were moving forward with one team, but in the end have uh, our counterparts decided another way. So I guess um, private investment is maybe the only solution for right now, although this is somewhat counterintuitive for a North American mind that usually you have in these redevelopment projects, you have the public sector who goes in first to create a market. But right now there's no public money, as the government was telling us. And even though we had been working closely with Elise on the ground, we were unable to make the final decision. And being able to step back and realize that we are just advising is important and instead of making decisions paternalistically. But the most recent update um, is that the group that they chose is also having problems raising funds. So this is just kind of indicative of this innovative way of doing development and it's kind of sad to see that there's not a lot of interest from the public and private sector. So we still have a few more months, and hopefully something will get off the ground soon. Now, moving on to Brazil. Um, this is our last project. Brazil is the largest country in Latin America. It's as large as the continental United States and has a population of about 200 million. For the past decade, Brazilian, the Brazilian economy, although recently has been slowing, has been growing to be one of the largest in the world. Uh, their economy continues to diversify with mining, manufacturing, petroleum extraction, food production, and even a growth in the service industry. So our project is working in Niteroi. 
which is in the state of Rio de Janeiro in the country's southwest region. Now, the, the country's second largest city, which is also named Rio de Janeiro, is of six, has six million people and is across the Guanabara Bay from Niteroi, which has a population of about a half a million. So the local NGO that we're working with is called Soluções Urbanas, and it, that means urban solutions in Portuguese. It's a small NGO, and it works on a very large variety of projects, but with APA, we were working on a housing renovation project. So Soluções is housed within a, public, uh, a state public health um, institute called Vital Brasil, and it has a close proximity to a slum or favela, which is right behind this whole complex. The Projecto Arquitecto, uh, which is the family architecture pro project, um, works with 100 families in the nearby favela. And favelas, I, I'm sure most of you know, but they can, they're slums and they can be found in most Brazilian cities. And they locate in places pretty deliberately and for advantageous reason, reasons sometimes. Some can be found on the periphery, but those that are in the heart of the city locate there for valid reasons. Most favelas are on hills and are just short walking commute for most of, their, um, most of the jobs on the flat, flat land. So in the past, Brazilian government has kind of dealt horribly with favelas in kind of just removing them, even though today they're still removing them for the FIFA World Cup and Olympic Games that are going to be happening in Rio. But um, the idea of creating new housing is kind of the way that is being pushed right now by the current president, Jilma Hussef, in the program called Minha Casa Minha Vida, which is My House, My Life. And that's really just kind of, we're going to do kind of large public housing complexes on the periphery on cheap land. So we're going to get lots of houses done, and that's all we need to do. So the problem is that you are moving families out of the center of the city, near all of the employment, all of the services, everything that you want, and their cost of transportation and everything else goes up. So this displacement is something that Solo Soins is really looking at and trying to avoid. And they want to upgrade the current housing that people are living in. So since the people want to stay where they're living because of social ties and all the reasons of economic um, gain, um, the architecture program has worked with 100 families to do designs to upgrade the current houses that they're living in the favelas. All the upgrades are done by a relatively sim simple sort of DIY method of group work. Families kind of work in groups and begin with one problem, such as stor stormwater runoff. And they go through all the houses doing the stormwater, stormwater management for each of the houses. And then when that's done, they move on to the next um, problem, such as ventilation, and then go through all the houses and work on the ventilation issues. And at the same time, Solisoyens has come up with a creative way to procure these materials that are needed for these construction up upgrades. So with a corporate partnership with um, Leroy Merlin, which is kind of like a French Home Depot, um, they have a store in Niteroi and decided to donate a lot of materials to Solisoyens. So then also Solisoyens takes uh, donations from people in the city. When you're doing a construction project, you usually have leftovers. So they go around, the, around town picking up different pieces of construction that they can then sell at a monthly fair that you can see here. And the fair is also um, pretty innovative in that you don't buy the materials. You, the people that are working on their projects, they come in bringing Tetra Pak packages. It's a, it's a type of packaging. 
and you bring in a certain number and then you receive a local currency and then you're able to purchase the construction materials. And in addition, these Tetra Pak packages are then recycled into roofing tiles at a, a plant nearby. So this recycling, so then these roofing tiles are then sold back at the fair to be used in the, in the housing upgrades. So this is kind of like, the recycling program is a pretty innovative closed loop system that we're also changing the behavior, kind of raising awareness for um, recycling in the community. So you can see here some of the examples of a renovation that has been complete with a facade, has totally been upgraded, and a new roof has been put on. Sorry about the photo quality on this one, but the family's kitchen here, you can see that has been totally upgraded as well. Excuse me. So the next steps for solo soins is to access federal funding. And um, part of the My House, My Life program, uh, which has been around since two, 2009, there's supposed to be money there for people to upgrade their houses through technical assistance and money for the construction materials. As of today, no money for that program has been dispersed. So in October, we met with the National Housing Secretary, Secretary in Brasilia, and um, they they're, they kind of proposed to us, you know, well, the, the problem is that there's no regulations to give out that money. Yes, it's a law, but there's no regulation for you to access it. So next month, Solusoins and APA will convene a workshop to kind of propose an idea to the federal government of saying, this is how you should maybe, um, we're going to work with dif different um, stakeholders in the country that are doing housing upgrading and come up with the ideas of how to um, hopefully disperse this, this, this money for upgrading. So the major challenges that we face is that the Brazilian government is kind of opposed to housing renovation. They're really just looking to kind of up their number of units and putting people far away from the city has its real costs. So slowly we're making progress, but hopefully the federal funding stream will be open and will show how successful housing renovation can be. So now we have a mic problem, but this comes to an end of our presentation and we still have a few more months of work to be done, obviously. These are kind of on their last steps. So we hope that um, you have questions and suggestions, and uh, thank you for listening. Any questions by a show of hands? I'll bring the mic around to you. Uh, on the Lima project, what kind of um, public works and public facilities did you bring to bear in terms of developments. Sorry, what was that? What kind of public works and public facilities in the Lima project are you, uh, did, is the city working on? In other words, are it in terms of um, health centers, uh, public transportation, um, those types of things also to improve the community? Those are our dreams to do that, yes, for sure. But talking with the, the, the way that Lima is set up is that each um, district is quite um, autonomous in that the Remac district has its own mayor and its own city coffer. So trying to work with that neighborhood has, because the, the overall city of Lima doesn't really want to put any money towards this project. So I think the, we, that's what we want to do. We want improvement to all of those things, but we're hoping that this private investment will kind of 
lead to more tax generation, and then eventually there's going to be more improvements holistically on, on, a, on a larger level than just these small projects. But I, that's something that we've always tried to talk to the politicians and even the technical staff, but there's just no money is the whole, is what we always hear. Any other comments, questions? Um, I'm wondering about the Brazil project. I, I lived in Brazil for a year and familiar with the favelas and the temporary nature of them and how they become permanent housing. And I'm just wondering about what kind of um, issues you had to address with kind of building codes and addressing which which areas might be targeted for upgrades as opposed to others that might should be demolished, don't have the infrastructure, security issues, that kind of thing, because there's a lot involved with those. The city of Niteroi kind of has mapped out specifically this, I mean, the, the favela right behind the Vital Brazil um, Institute has had a lot of, I mean, it's kind of, it's sprung up because of this building in a way. A lot of the workers live there. Um, and it, for that reason, it's gotten a lot of studying. A lot of people have mapped it. And especially for landslides is a big issue. So there's a whole area that is, you know, no building. Obviously, that has been invaded. But the, the 100 families that were selected were made sure that they were on stable ground and all of those type of things. Of course, land tenure, we're not, we're not even talking about that in this situation because, <laughs> you know, it's just so complex at this point. And it's weird that we're talking to the federal government as well, and, the, and they haven't brought it up as well. So, In Mexico City, uh, does the local government or the state government or the federal government require that there is outreach to be done? You said that the engineers and whoever worked in the project uh, didn't have outreach experience, but maybe it wasn't taught to them because it wasn't regulated or required. I know that planning students in the United States have to learn these because they're mandated. Are they mandated in Mexico or the AFA? Um, so I don't know the correct response. I don't know the actual response to that, but I know that it isn't. Um, there's a lot of discussion of community engagement, community outreach, and I think it goes back to this point of they know it's important, they just don't know how to do it. And I, one thing that uh, APA learned in the first grant was that planning in general throughout Latin America is not an ac academic discipline. So a lot of times it'll be um, urban development, a degree in urban development, or a degree in architecture, or a degree in engineering. And planning in the planning uh, field, academic field, and when you're learning planning, it, community engagement is a part, an important part of that. Um, so I don't know if it's required from my knowledge and from my experience working with the various government agencies. It's never required, um, but they learn quickly that it's very, very important when you're doing these types of projects. Um, for all three projects, I was wondering um, how much the scope of the projects focus on the infrastructure and sort of the, the um, neighborhood and district level decision making that can bring some of that infrastructure to the projects that help make more sustainable communities overall in, in addition to improving the housing conditions? Well, um, with, with the Bolivia, Bolivia project in particular, um, because there wasn't um, the municipality going and providing the public infrastructure, the community actually took it upon themselves to 
to develop their own infrastructure, they found independent ways to um, construct a water treatment plant, um, provide sewage. Uh, recently, community members uh, started their own transportation routes to get back and forth from uh, from the city center. You know, excavated rocks to have roads going up and down the hillside. Uh, so that was uh, unique in itself that it was so organic and what's happening in in Cochabamba they don't know how to change the zoning of the district from rural to urban because they can't provide the services so what we were hoping is that this community could provide an example of of providing public services independent of the municipality that doesn't have the um, maybe the resources to to bring the the services out that far um, so it was it was a unique example of how infrastructure was provided in a in a community that didn't have it. Now that's not hasn't at this point been incorporated into any policies or anything, but it'll be interesting to see what happens. Anything else for me? I, I would like to say in Peru, we we propose those ideas again to the public sector, and everyone's really likes the idea, but there's no funding as what we always get back with. Um, so that's always the issue there. And in, in, in um, the Solo Soins project in, in, in Brazil, they're kind of doing lots of education as well as just this housing renovation project. So there's kind of like the recycling program was a big um, hit and, you know, they built a community center. So there's organization that's going on. I think that's maybe the first step before we can kind of get into the infrastructural greening of the community. Just make sure that everyone's on board and there's like an education there. So I think those are the dreams and hopes, but it's hard to get there when you're working where, where we're working from right now. So. Any other questions? I have a comment about the Peru project. I think that um, the success of that project is the community organization work and the associations that were created because the challenge of doing mixed income housing in Peru, I mean, that's, if it ever happens, I'd be surprised. So I think the associations, that's a major, you know, that's that's a success of the, of the project, more so than the, you know, dollar um, indicator of investment in Remac. Um, the Bolivia project, I had a question about the um, ethnic makeup of CMA, if it's predominantly Quechua or if um, if there's migrants from other parts of the country or mostly Cochabamba. Actually, a, a lot of uh, the inhabitants in CMA are from Altiplano, the western highlands, so there's a, a good amount of Aymaras and Quechuas in the community. Um, you also get some uh, people from other countries. We, there were some Peruvians in the community. There was actually a British woman living in the community. Um, but for the majority, it was Quechua and Aymara, and maybe I would say, I mean, rough estimate, I, I'd say 40% of them were from the Western Highlands, Altiplano region. A lot of them from Potosí, Oruro, um, and La Paz, but especially from Oruro and Potosí. One last quick question about Mexico. Did you get into the issue of maintenance of the pocket parks and who would pay for that or take care of it? 
Yeah. Um, so that was actually uh, a huge uh, point of contention or question for the public space authority. It's we're going to build all these pocket parks. Who's going to take care of them and maintain them? Is the government going to be in charge of it? And actually, when you involve the community from the beginning, um, the consultant from Bogota, he actually sh showed a case study where um, they have been involved. They when they designed a pocket park in, in Colombia, um, they involved the community from the beginning. And in part of the process, the community actually decided themselves that we will maintain this and we will take care of it. We'll have every Saturday go out there. There will be a group of us. And so um, what we tried to emphasize is... Uh, that when you are uh, doing the, during the design process with the community, think of those things and get the ideas from them about how the 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 park could continue to be maintained in their neighborhood. Um, so they came up with several ideas, but actually one another idea or another um, way that is happening is uh, partnering with the private sector. So there's actually a launch of a new car service share car sharing service in Mexico City called Carrot. And um, one of the pocket parks that they're building in another neighborhood, Condesa, Carrot has decided that they will actually be in charge of the maintenance because it's good for their business if the area is clean where they're parking the cars and the cars are being shared. Um, so that's one one way. Um, another in another area, a coffee shop um, that the pocket park was adjacent to decided that they would they wanted um, that they would be in charge of the daily maintenance and cleaning of it because that would attract more customers and bring in more money and service to them so um, in the in the engage uh, community engagement process it's the stakeholders are not only the neighbors but are the local businesses as well so how are we bringing them into the process and getting their ideas and um, many times they will offer their services to actually maintain it because it's good for business Um, I just have a sort of a large-scale question, really, and that's uh, looking at the context, um, say, on a global level. Uh, you talk about lessons learned, and I just wondered if you could comment on the relationship, let's say, of the countries that you work in, in Latin America and in South America, versus, say, in the U.S., um, particularly looking at such things like relationships of government, uh, private and public um, sectors, how do they compare and say where we are here as to in the countries you're working in? Well, in, in Bolivia, it was interesting got a lot of um, cold shoulder from the government. The community had been for a while. Um, and I think local government can be more engaging in the United States um, or have more contact with the ANCs. But there's also been um, episodes in the United States as well where that doesn't happen. Um, so it can be a mixed bag. Um, in terms of the... Uh, cooperative structure, the co-housing arrangement, um, and maybe this is strained a bit from your question, but uh, I heard that um, struggles for 
individual land titles can be a, a common occurrence, uh, not just in Bolivia or Latin America, like what was happening in this community, but has happened with some cooperatives in New York and, and D.C. as well. So uh, the effects that the market can have on on a social housing arrangement are similar uh, regardless of the country or culture. Well, I think it's it's hard to compare, um, but lessons learned is that, you know, the government will try to be as helpful as possible, but again, I keep on saying this, but the funding is always an issue. So we're coming up with this great idea, and, you know, we don't see any, especially in Lima, we don't see any interest or just from the public side, just let the private do it. It's going to be great. Headlines in the in the national newspaper talking about sixty eight million dollars worth of investment, blah blah blah, from the private sector. But there's nothing. It's just such taking such a back seat to it, which I find kind of shocking. In that they're just letting it run full steam ahead, and we've come into problems with this and letting the private sector just go because it hasn't pushed forward yet. So I think that. Um, and then for the Brazilian project, it's just like the ideas of favelas, although there are places that you can find in the United States that are somewhat similar. It's just the scale and the, that, that it occurs on in Brazil. It's just so mind-baffling that it's, it's hard to think of any lessons can be learned, but it's just it's going back to organizing the community and in Mexico working with the community. So I think it's no matter what type of community it is, whether it's informal or um, affluent, you just, if everyone's working together and, and talking to each other, you're going to have such a better product with whatever sort of development you're going to be doing. So I admittedly don't have a degree in planning. I actually come from the international development field. And in that sense, I would say that um, in my experience as an international development professional, community engagement, um, both from professionals from Western countries or pro professionals for Southern countries is always discussed, but the issues of knowing to how to actually um, execute that and actually having a toolbox to be able to do that is lacking both for um, professionals from Western countries and professionals from Southern countries. And so um, for me, kind of what this really lessons learned in general um, is the importance of it for anyone from wh whatever country you come from. Um, so that, that was definitely important for me. Time for one more question, if we have one. Except for in the Mexico City case, it seems like one of the bigger problems is financing affordable housing abroad. And I'm wondering if at all you guys dove into some research of how, if that is at all possible, other through foundation funding, through, um, maybe certain local governments to finance affordable housing. Um, well, I mean, there is projects in Brazil that do have affordable housing programs, but as I was saying, the, the Minha Casa Minha Vida is kind of, it, it came at the economic slump in 2008, or it started in 2009, but it was kind of, you know, when we were meeting with the housing secretariat, they were saying, this is actually kind of more of an economic generator, so we could build stuff and get people to work, rather than a, than a housing program. 
So it's kind of like misguided, and a lot of the, I mean, Peru, their in the their neoliberal fascination in the '90s kind of changed their government structure, and I think their housing secretariat is now in communications. It's like a very small, kind of non-existent, mostly doing rural development. So this whole idea of urban redevelopment is just not in the 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 thought process yet. So hopefully these small little projects will be able to kind of showcase that people want to live in cities and the price of that needs to be relative and be able to like have a mixed income. So yeah, it's pioneering field, but there is mixing, there isn't mixed income in Latin America, in Brazil, in Sao Paulo It happened last year. So it's possible. We're, we're hoping. Um, one resource I would say to check out for innovation and financing for housing development is the Acumen Fund. It's an impact investment fund that is investing in several projects um, in for the base of the pyramid communities. I know they're doing a project and uh, investing in a project in Pakistan and I think Kenya um, and a few other countries. Uh, and so that would be a good resource to look up and see how they're doing that. And it's all different types of um, innovation and financing for housing development. Okay. All right. Again, I want to thank everybody for coming out in, so, in such cold weather. But uh, if you could join me in thanking Thomas Bassett, Luis Turan, and Catalina Mayorga, thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs>